Hi everyone, I'm Milton Wani. I'm the host of the Cannabis Business Podcast. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this podcast. I want to introduce you to Kristen Yodder. When I first communicated with Kristen, it was on LinkedIn in the comments section. She called herself the BS Detector. She has over 13 years of experience in the industry, from soil to oil, as she likes to call it. Five years working in a medical dispensary in Los Angeles, two years as a master grower, and three years working with edibles and lab testing. She also offers her own podcast and appears at events and presentations. Without further ado, here's Kristen Yodder. Let me ask this question. How did you get started? Uh, I got started back in 2005 when I got my doctor's recommendation for cannabis for anxiety. And to be honest, it wasn't really for anxiety. I just loved smoking weed. That's like how we did it in LA. That's why we didn't need legalization. We had a perfectly fine system of just going to a doctor or even just a $40 Skype video call and then you could go shopping anywhere you want to buy your cannabis. So um, but I got started. I went to the only dispensary in the city of Los Angeles. Mind you, West Hollywood already had dispensaries, but not in the city. So there was one in Venice and I walked in and I was just in heaven. I was like, oh my God, there's, there's a store where you can just buy cannabis. And I was like, do you guys need help? And they said, actually we do. And that was the beginning of the end of my conventional life. So I ended up working at the dispensary for five years, managing that, then going into growing cannabis for two years, followed by managing product development, R&D and operations of one of the largest edible companies in California for three years, followed by a year at the analytical testing lab that I had used while at the edible company for doing product development and testing of extract for formulation. And I worked with them for a year, followed by a year of doing management consulting for cannabis businesses, uh, which I realized I hate management consulting. And that took me up to this year. And this year, now I do strategic advising and my podcast and my Dash radio show and my radio show on FM radio in San Diego. My passion came from loving cannabis since I was 14. Uh, like the culture, dazed and confused, half-baked, all of those stoner movies. That was like my childhood. I mean, yeah, 14 is pretty young, but I'm going to be honest. So that's where my passion came from, is just loving the culture. My BS detection, I, back in 2008, I bought the domain cynicalstoner.com. Uh, encyclopedia.com, et cetera, et cetera. And I created this website because I was disillusioned by how out of touch with reality all of the people were that were coming into the dispensary. And it was during the Bush years. And it, I was just, I was, I was losing my mind trying to educate people. So I just decided to create a website, thecynicalstoner.com with a bunch of trusted news sources and it was like a news aggregator. It had all these documentaries I thought people should see. And I realized this year that I've been trying to educate people for 10 years now, and I'm doing the exact same thing, except now I'm making a living doing it. 
versus before it was just a hobby of mine. But I think BS detection, calling out BS has always been a passion of mine because I just want people to be educated so that people can make informed decisions and not emotional decisions or reactive decisions. Getting into the cannabis industry, I think a big myth is that it's fun because it's not fun. It sucks for the most part, especially if you're touching the plant. Um, I don't know how hard it is in Canada, but in America, if you're in a legalized state or a recreational state, it's very hard to get a license and it takes a lot of money. And I think a lot of people, especially people that have found uh, relief or therapeutic effects for medical conditions often want to quit their job and get into the cannabis industry because it's had such a positive effect in their life. And I think some of the BS expectations is that cannabis is a meritocracy and that just isn't it. So if you've had a good experience with it and you want to change the world, just realize that you're getting into a very cutthroat, competitive and capital heavy industry. And if you're looking for that culture and community, you're more likely to find it around the people that are struggling to survive and not the people that are thriving for the most part. Misery loves company in a way. So there is community, but things get very competitive when you're actually running a cannabis business. I read in Wikipedia that California provides 79% of the cannabis for the United States. And I also hear uh, Los Angeles is such a big city, such a big market that uh, Colorado and Washington State can't compete in numbers. Is that right? I fully believe that. And that's where I've, my entire 13 years in the cannabis industry has been in Los Angeles, which is also one of the most criminal uh, cannabis industries. Like you hear the cannabis industry is the Wild West. Los Angeles is literally the definition of that. There's so much money here. So many, I mean, the competition is fierce. Uh, people cut a lot of corners. It's, it's a very difficult market to survive, but that's where all the money is. Northern California is where the cannabis is grown outdoors and uh, has been grown for decades and decades and is known the Emerald Triangle. Um, it's, it's where the culture of cannabis is. It's where medical cannabis began, was up in San Francisco in 1996. They're the ones who created Prop 215, which was the medical cannabis proposition that we've all been operating under up until this year. Southern California is much more um, criminal. It's much more indoor cannabis. The people don't care as much about the quality as they do the price. It's more gangster, honestly, in SoCal than it is in NorCal. It's not nearly as accepted in Southern California locally either by the governments than it is in NorCal. NorCal is just kind of it's a legit industry in NorCal. And they're also more concerned with quality and organic and, and like the better part of cannabis where Southern California is just capital. It's a capitalistic market. I don't know very much about California's history. And I wonder if you can say a little bit how it started. Well, so there was the Compassionate Use Act which is Prop 215 that was passed back in 1996. And it was started to help all of these people 
that were dying from AIDS up in San Francisco. And one of the treatments that was really effective was cannabis for the wasting syndrome for people that couldn't eat. AIDS also led to cancer. Cancer is another one of the major reasons cannabis was so important back then and is today because it helped people with chemotherapy, with their nausea and with their appetite. And RSO has helped people cure their cannabis. And I feel weird saying that, but I've met people that have actually like gotten rid of their cancer with RSO oil. So it's legitimate in my eyes. But that started back in 1996. And then we had SB420 that happened, which was a state bill that had clarified further about cannabis businesses and what type of entities to have. And then we had when Arnold Schwarzenegger, which uh, he was, was our governor, he ended up making cannabis. He decriminalized cannabis and he made it that you could have up to an ounce of flour and up to so many grams of extract legally, or if you were over that, you would get a ticket or a misdemeanor. And that's what really pissed me off about Prop 64 is Californians were sold this bag of, this is California, we should be legalized, we should be like leading the country in regulating our industry, but it was decriminalized. Like, that's what we want. This shouldn't be treated like a crime in the first place. Legalization to me is not what you think it is. Instead, it's this rigid set of ridiculous regulations that make it nearly impossible for just anyone to get into it. They make the barrier of, to entry so much higher. They also make the testing requirements so much more difficult. I mean, I think California is about to have like a major breakdown in the beginning of next year because they are now going into, there are these different categories of testing requirements. So they'll say cat one, cat two. And that just means the category one was mostly potency and some pesticide testing. Category two was 66 different types of pesticides plus potency plus moisture content. Now category three, which is going to start in the beginning of the year, is testing for heavy metals. And the thing is, is heavy metals are in freaking everything. I've heard that like no one's able to pass heavy metal testing, which is really going to be a, a big problem to our industry when none of the products can pass. There's not going to be products on the shelves. So but that's like a whole other conversation. But that's where we're going into is out of, I mean, we passed, so the state passed legalization in January, but here we are in December and still two thirds of the state has chosen not to regulate cannabis, which means two thirds of the state have banned cannabis activity, which is insane because there's still two thirds of the state that still purchase cannabis, but they're doing it on the black market now because there is no gray market anymore. There's a big problem when we don't have our local governments in all of these cities and counties that are actually taking the steps to regulate their industry instead of having a thriving black market. And that's where we're at now is we just had the latest round of regulations drop in California and they just passed that the entire state will allow delivery services because 
just because these cities don't want to deal with cannabis doesn't mean they don't have medical patients in their cities and counties that need access to cannabis. So the state was like, we have to allow delivery because we can't have these cannabis deserts all over the state. And now we'll see how long that lasts because the cities and counties are pissed off because they're like, we don't want this in our area, which was one of the major flaws of Prop 64 was giving these cities and counties the right to self-regulate or not regulate at all uh, because that's the easier route for them. Even though it's like, look, man, if you don't regulate your industry, you have a black market, period. Why wouldn't you regulate it? Why wouldn't you get the tax revenue? Why wouldn't you get your, excuse my language, shit in order? It doesn't make any sense. So it, California is the fifth largest economy in the world. Money runs our politics. And I think that the reason these cities don't regulate it is because these people want to get reelected or their constituents aren't interested in having cannabis and they're just trying to appeal to their constituents instead of cannabis patients. There's the CDFA, which is the California Department Farming and Agriculture. They're in control of regulating cultivation. And within the CDFA, if you're gonna do outdoor cultivation, you have to work with several departments like the Department of Pesticide Regulation, the State Water Board and Resources, the Department of Fish and Wildlife, and all of these different things. Then there is the CDPH, the California Department of Health, and they are managing the manufacturers. They are in control of the edible companies and the labs, I believe. No, wait, the labs fall under the BCC. So the BCC is the Bureau of Cannabis Control or the California Cannabis, and they are in control of retail labs and distribution. The difference between Canada right now and what you have right there is we have more uh, an oligopoly kind of situation where we have some major big growers. I think right now 115 legal growing uh, licensed producers, where I think in the United States and Cal California, for example, in the north, uh, you said two thirds of people haven't signed on on um, getting their application. You have so many more. You probably have thousands of uh, illegal growers happening or growers. Yeah, well, ours. they're only illegal now because of legalization where they were gray before. California is massive. Like I said, fifth largest economy in the world. So it's definitely different than, I don't know where Canada is at in total, but nowhere really, everywhere pales in comparison to California as yeah. far as just the size of our market, the amount of growers, the amount of cannabis production, the amount of politicians in the middle of it, really a mess. Some people admire what you have over there. I, don't, I guess they like the idea of municipalities having more control, more safe. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, some of us like the way Canada looks, but I guess we just don't know each other's BS very well. <laughs> well, you we right now have a shortage of uh, cannabis. I know you have a uh, surplus, is that right, because of your growing situation? Yeah, I mean, really, who has a surplus would be Oregon. They've got so much cannabis, and they've got no one to buy it, and they're just really having to cut their prices to a really unlivable amount for these growers. I think, Calif I mean, Oregon and Canada should make a deal. Um, California is just still too messy. I mean, we'll see how much 
cannabis we have available starting next month when they start doing heavy metal testing and there's only as much cannabis as there is legal like qualified licensed cannabis and things are about to get bad yesterday was the first time i bought my government marijuana um, how did it go you got this guy at the entrance looking at you like, before you walk in the door see the and security then, guard he's security but he's not security he's kind of dressed down but then you go inside and then there's actually a security guy checking people's IDs. So once you walk into the store, it's kind of like this somewhat moshed, but really orderly lines going up to this counter. At first it felt quiet, as in it wasn't very noisy, but the closer I got to talking to the guy, it was more like I couldn't even ask him what they had. We have such a shortage here. He just told me what he has, told me, asked me what I'm looking for, but it felt more like a conveyor belt. Yeah. So I got in, I paid. I still don't know to some extent what I have. I know it's a sativa, but as quality or product go, I still have to figure it out. I would assume that the quality would be really good because they have such ridiculous standards for quality and production. I have no doubt the quality is good, to be honest. I do. And I know I'm going to be talking to you a little bit about that shortly. I'm also going to ask you what strain you have, because I don't know my strain, but it's nice to hear you. Well, Um, so I have to correct you as the BS detector and mm -hmm. someone who teaches people about terpenes. Indica and sativa has literally nothing to do with the effect of cannabis. I know, I know, I know, I know. You didn't correct (laughs) me. I knew that, but I'll tell you what I mean. That's the only way that this bud tender told me about the product. That's the only way that bud tenders tell people about the product everywhere. And it is my freaking life's mission to change that. But until we can figure out a way to teach people aromatic chemistry in one second, then uh, it's going to continue. In the end, indica sativa works for people because placebo effect is a very strong, very legitimate thing. So if you think it's sativa, you might feel a sativa effect that you wouldn't even feel if you thought it wasn't indica, which is so interesting. But it's the smell that makes all the difference. It's the terpenes. And then quality, I mean, even in California, just because you're getting licensed cannabis doesn't mean it's going to be the best. It just means it passed testing. A woman in Brooklyn who uh, had severe nausea. And so when she had her twins, the the authorities had come and temporarily taken the children away because they thought she was abusing it. Ultimately, she got the children back. I mean, the lawyers had said that it wasn't really an abuse. But I'm just curious, do we need to think of women differently when it comes to being cannabis consumers? You know, there's this sleeping pill called Ambien, and people were like taking this and then sleep eating their entire fridge. They'd like wake up the next day with like a hurting stomach and all their food was gone and they had totally blacked out. This became like a real issue for Ambien. What's super interesting that I've learned recently is that most pharmaceutical clinical trials are on men and men only because women have reproductive systems and different hormones that can affect the half-life and the effectiveness of a medication. So they're generally not included in clinical trials on all medicine. It turns out that for Ambien, women processed it twice as quickly as men did. So it was twice as strong for women as it was for men, yet we were being dosed the same by doctors. So I think that's an interesting point to make that Our bodies do process things differently. We process alcohol differently. Maybe I am not a medical doctor and I'm speaking from 
speculation right now because I don't know fully on a medical level what the differences might be. But I mean, like we're already getting treated differently in our lives through getting paid less or getting less opportunities than men and things like that. It's like, dude, literally let us do what we need to do with our medicine. I mean, would they be taking her kids away if she was prescribed narcotics because she got like her back hurt or something? Like, no, they wouldn't because that's totally normal to the government for all of us to be on prescription narcotics. But you give her a freaking plant and now you're taking the kids. That's what's wrong with our country and with our society is that this old prohibition mindset of the crazy weed, the devil weed, still permeates our our culture across all aspects of it, from law to politics to just general health. All of I mean, only like 13% of doctors, I don't know if that's the right percentage, but it's around there, actually know about the endocannabinoid system. That's insane. <laughs> like, this is an actual legit system in our body that regulates all kinds of things. And if doctors don't even know about it, how will they understand that it's not bad at all to be using cannabis, that it actually makes sense when they, people have endocannabinoid deficiencies? We have medical research that shows this. But then when you get to law enforcement, that's like a whole new beast to have to get them to under. I mean, if doctors don't understand, why would the police understand is kind of my point. So I think that it's very unfortunate that women... I know families, they're afraid to be in the cannabis industry and have kids because they don't want to lose their kids over it. But that is a possibility. The MJ Biz Daily in 2015 recognized that 36% of the top leadership cannabis companies were women. But uh, very recent, 27%, it's gotten down. There's less women than there were a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but it has yeah. to do in part to, I guess, consolidations, companies merging. And so you need a smaller staff. And even with women at top executive positions, let's say CEOs, it kind of hides the fact that generally speaking, that there are a lot less women executives. You know, a lot of these women who are CEOs go to meetings and they find out they're the only woman out of, I don't know how many men there are in the room. So let's just say 10 men. The question I have for you is, is there a problem or an issue? That, oh, Yeah. Definitely. Like I always say, there might be uh, more women business owners in the cannabis industry than other industries, but these women are getting pushed out of their own companies. They have way more difficulty actually getting funding, raising funds. They're still being marginalized when it comes to events, speaking, legitimacy, whatever. I find that I'm usually the only woman on a panel or in a trade group. I was part of something called C-Lab in Los Angeles. It was educational networking for lawyers, accountants, and businesses. And I was the only woman on the entire board of like 12 guys. And then another woman came in. It was just us two. But it's just, it's a, it's a white male baby boomer wealthy industry. That's who's taking it over. That's who always takes it over. That I made a post about Acreage Holdings who just disgust me to have John Boehner like, are you freaking kidding me? He was anti-cannabis. And then you were commenting that your ex-prime minister who just joined it 
uh, Canada's ex-prime minister that just joined the board as well was anti-cannabis. And I was just saying like, they are exactly what's wrong with the industry because these guys want to be the largest cannabis fund out there. Of course they do. How typical is that? Then it's like, hey man, well, now that it's legal and we can make money off of it, then let's like teach other people to exploit it and let's bring on these like white male elitist lying people to come on and go talk to the rest of the white male elitists and be like, hey, now's a great time to invest in cannabis. It's like, dude, where were you guys when we were going to jail? On your behalf, probably, because of some policies that you believed in or upheld, and now you want to capitalize on our industry? Like, no way, not cool with that. And what's funny is the next day, I got a phone call from someone I had been connected with. He's an investor. And he was asking me if I would introduce him to any dispensary owners in Venice because this um, fund that he was asking on behalf of was looking to buy a license in Venice. And I'm like, what fund? And he's like, Acreage Holdings. And I'm like, oh my God, that's so ironic because I was just saying how I would never help those people. Like I despise them. And I'm like, no, I will not introduce you to anybody. Like, good luck with that. You know, like I'm not rich, dude. I'm not making a lot of money at all, but I'm not, that's because I'm not selling out. Like the people that really, I hate to be honest, bro. No, I don't. I love to be honest. People that are bad do the best in this industry because there are ways to cut corners. It just takes money and influence. And trust me, the guys with money and influence, they're cutting corners and they're the ones who will win in the end, unfortunately. Like we can all kumbaya together but like let's be realistic look at any other emerging commodity what has happened to it consolidation and exploitation it just that's what happens and it freaking pisses me off and oh, okay getting off my high horse i feel bad that i'm only going to bury you deeper into this conversation so <laughs> you go for it like this so is this is my passion right here you know you talk about the bro culture and i, I mm. just Ever, ever since you started to say that, I've started to use it more often. And what's funny to me is people agree. Oh, yeah, dude. The bro culture. It's the same as the tech bros or the pharma bros. It's just these. Now, these are the younger white male um, wealthy guys. It's these bros, generally. I understand through your experiences, uh, you had sexism when you were at the dispensary. I'm just looking forward to those days being behind us. And I just wonder if you can say anything about that. Maybe legalization will mellow out the blatant sexual connotation and representation of women at their dispensaries. But like in LA, out in the valley, I swear to God, like it was just strippers working in, in these shops selling weed, like girls in bikinis and stuff. For me, I had to wear a skirt or a dress every day. I'm like, dude, I'm smart and I have personality and people love me. Like, why do I have to dress like that? People come in anyways, but it works, dude. Unfortunately, people, men, if men are the main consumers, this is who you're appealing to. It's your demographic. It works. For some women, they're totally down. Like, they're not being exploited. And I'm like, you go, girl. You got that body. You do what you want to do, you know? But in a lot of ways, just as there are so few women executives in the cannabis industry, there are so few women employees in cannabis companies that it can make for a very charged environment. And 
cannabis also attracts not the best people. And then these people get glorified because they're cannabis business owners and their bad attitudes and approaches just get even worse because now they're held up on a pedestal and can do no wrong. And I think that women, whether you're younger or, or even older, like you're still having to deal with this bro culture, testosterone type of situation. It's very interesting, but it's still, it's not, it's not equitable for women yet. Like that's a freaking joke, dude. Like I hate seeing those articles being like women breaking the grass ceiling or whatever. It's like, no dude, we're slamming our heads into it. When I look at grower ads, it's targeted to a male audience. (laughs) Yeah. When you're on Instagram, women in bikinis. Yep. I'll be following an Instagram account until they post like a naked chick holding up nugs like in front of her nipples or something. And I'm just like, all right, I'm cool. Like I'm done. There's this one vape company I will leave unnamed that has like this model contest where they have all these like young hot chicks send in their sexual, sexually provocative pictures. And like, I swear to God, one of the pictures they showed was just like this half naked 16 year old looking girl. And it's like, dude, this is insane. There's another cannabis company that I will leave unnamed. Um, well, they do cannabis grow houses and grow rooms. And they literally hired porn stars to be like their logos practically. And like, so they'll post these pictures of these porn stars like half naked in like um, forklifts, in a forklift, like super provocative. And all the comments are like, she could come to her, my facility any day and like all kinds of stuff and dude it's just what do why why do we think cannabis is literally any different than any other commodity when in the end freaking carl's jr has sexual connotation to his burger advertising like this is cannabis let's put this on the same level because this is how government people see it and other people as alcohol and some other recreational substances dude they all use sex for advertising. Food use, everyone uses sex. It's like an effective tool. In Canada, government has requirements of what you can advertise. It's made every company a brand. You know, simple branding, you really just have a logo. So yeah. uh, grow companies are not necessarily cannabis. They're they're dealing with like a manure and things like that. Yeah. Um, so they can yeah, get away with- Yeah, they're full of shit. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> They can get away with uh, that kind of advertising, but uh, right here in Canada, we don't see a lot of that. Yeah, I just, I tend to think as an American, like Canada is like the oasis of like liberal, nice people that are just cool and everything's awesome. And it's just really cold. Like, (laughs) that's how I see Canada. So, you know, I don't live there. It's just like you guys don't totally understand California, but it seems like you guys are just better people <laughs> in general. <laughs> you know, in Oregon, there's a woman named Amy, and I can't remember her name. Margolin. That's right. Can you talk about it? Because I'm wondering if there are things that we can do to help with the situation of improving experiences for women. So I don't know the total specifics of it. I've just read about it, and she she created like a WeWork but for women cannabis entrepreneurs that also serves as an incubator. Uh, so it's bringing all of these different companies together that are owned by women into a really open, women-friendly 
environment where it's like everyone is in the same industry. When you're in the when you're in legal cannabis, you are in compliance. Compliance is your freaking life. And to be with companies from different sectors, it's even better because you all have a really good understanding of your specific sector, but you all need to work together in the end. So she she's really like creating that space for women to be able to really support each other and still thrive and compete with men-owned businesses and be, you know, to actually have a chance to make it. And I have like a huge amount of respect for Amy for doing that. She's always been really progressive in Oregon. She's like a very respected lawyer up there. Women uh, statistically do very well when it comes to running their businesses uh, compared to men. Yes. Profitability numbers and, and other indicators. Yeah. And the real problem and issue is if you're a startup looking for investment, unfortunately, women get less amount. Yep. Well, it's like, duh, obviously no shit. Like we're the ones who always keep the books anyways, for the most part, like women are detail oriented, but also um, like, do men not marry women? Is there no respect here? Do you not appreciate the other? I mean, even if you're just in trying to save face and look good, having women owned companies that you invest in is something you could use to your advantage. So why don't you just do you and do us and let's all be surviving and all be thriving together. But yeah, I mean, women-owned companies generally do better. But what's crazy is Whitney Beatty, who's the owner of a can of, um, which are like little bags and boxes and stuff for cannabis products. She was saying that black women, they get 0.02% get funded. 0.02% of female, black, female-owned businesses. That is fucking absurd. It's bad enough that we have our whole, you know, menstrual situation and every, like, giving birth and all that other stuff that women have to deal with, but really, like, we can't even get our businesses funded. Like, why don't we support women more? Are we not your daughters, wives, and mothers? Like, come on. You talk about the importance of a business plan and you talk about a mission statement. And I know you talk about operations, and that has to do with cost controls and inventory and management. You talk in terms of SOPs and employee handbooks. Not so much employee handbooks, but yeah, SOPs, just in the simple fact, there's one of my favorite quotes, and I hope I don't mess this up, by Dr. Howard Deming, who's like operational management guru, management guru. He had said that if you can't explain what you do in a process, you don't know what you're doing. And I think that it is so essential and yet so lacking until now because it's required to have SOPs for any cannabis companies to have actual SOPs with a standardized process for every process that you do an inventory, supply chain, whatever, packaging, uh, distribution. Because when you hire people and you don't have this written down, then they create their own process. Then it's like you get pissed because they're doing something wrong. Well, you're not training them correctly in the first place. Plus, if you have an SOP, you have a document to hold people accountable to. But when you're shooting from the hip and you yourself are not setting the example by having a standardized procedure, then you're asking for all kinds of operational issues. And the bigger your company gets, the worse it all becomes when you don't have these processes mapped out. The state requires them. 
they require a ridiculous amount of documentation. You know what's actually interesting, sorry to go off topic maybe, but this might be on topic, is that California, the state requires all cannabis businesses to have a document where they have considered literally everything that could possibly go wrong and how they would mitigate it. No small business license in any other industry that I know of, maybe financial or something like that, Nothing requires you to have a business plan to get a license. Nothing requires you to have these SOPs up front, let alone have a document where you've actually addressed every risk and problem that could possibly happen. If you don't succeed, I mean, if you have capital and you don't succeed after having that much documentation before you start operating, you are like doomed because most companies don't start out with such a solid blueprint slash foundation for their success. I mean, this is literally what you need. These are things you should be thinking about before you start a business is everything that could go wrong and how you can mitigate it. Like if you get all of this done, then operating should be fairly easy once you actually get up and going because you've already thought through these things. Most business owners did not think through these things when they started their companies. So I think that's a very interesting point is that it's required to have operations put together. You need to also have managers that enforce it and follow it and, you know, maintain it or it's only as good as the paper it's printed on. Here's another thing in California. If you want to get a license, you have to have the property and the property has to be compliant and ready to start to get your license approved. Doesn't even mean you're going to get a license. That's a huge investment up front. And there's a lot of people in cities and towns that have thought, okay, so I'm in the green zone that the city said, you know, but then the city just never actually got to licensing. So you own a building that you've been paying the lease for for two, three, four years that you can't even operate a freaking business inside of. Like, that's common. That's why I tell people, dude, first come does not mean first winner. Often, especially in California, those are the first losers because you can't afford to get through all of the regulatory changes. I mean, I want to say hold strong, but I think also you need to be realistic about what exactly is the timeline for getting this license and can you afford to continue operating or not operating and just paying on the lease? And I, what I'm starting to learn and realize personally myself is you've got to have other income streams coming in. When you get into the cannabis industry, you don't get to just quit your job because it's not going to pay you for a while, dude. It's an investment. It's not a gain immediately. So, I mean, my recommendation is to find another income stream ASAP and at least have money coming in to offset the cost of not being able to operate and being on a hold pattern because these local governments, I don't know, it's like in Canada, but Los Angeles has failed to regulate its industry for over a decade okay, a freaking decade, people have been fighting for the right to operate. It's a lot of freaking money. I often tell people I practice expectation management. And generally, that just means lower your expectations, or you're going to be sorely disappointed and probably like have a breakdown. Because this industry is brutal, dude. It's brutal. And when you're relying on government, like that sucks. Like no one wants to rely on the government, especially to be quick or considerate. You know, especially in, Cal or in Canada with all the consolidation 
I have to imagine that all of these LPs and these major businesses have the advantage of ruling over every other industry that opens up or any other city or, or whatever because they're already established. They've already played this game and they have the money to do it. So I think you just be realistic with yourself and your revenue and everything because not everyone makes it. Lots of people fail. You've got to bring in money somehow, even if it hurts. And I'm talking to myself just as much as other people. I just want to throw a couple ideas out to you and I want to hear if you think there's anything that we should know about. End of compassion. Legalization equals capitalism. Medical cannabis wasn't about capitalism. It was about compassion. And when Prop 64, the legalization proposition in California took effect, it was the end of compassion because giving free product away to sick people was illegal. They just, they had to create a bill to allow that and it's still highly regulated. But the prices, um, the medical patients have to pay just as much as the retail patients. I mean, the retail customers, unless they register with the state, which means they go on a federal registry. And in California and the ninth district of the U.S., that affects your gun rights. If you go to purchase a gun and it puts you on other registries, well, if you have kids, like there are a lot of reasons why people didn't want to be on a state registry in the first place. Plus it only gets you 9.25% tax off of cannabis. But another problem is a medical cannabis patient has a lot higher tolerance for products. And in Washington, they had allowed medical cannabis products to be a thousand milligram limit. In California, they have made all cannabis uh, edibles a hundred milligrams tops. That's it. So a chocolate bar that used to cost a medical patient $20 that was 180 milligrams is now 100 milligrams and costs $40 because of taxes. That's not compassionate. You know, now you're making medical patients pay for recreational use and it's not, it's not recreational. The state didn't start off with, and I've actually did a podcast with these guys called the Pop Brothers at Law, and they corrected me saying, it's not recreational cannabis, it's adult use. That's the difference, adult use versus medical. We have Big Pharma, tobacco, and Coca-Cola, Coca-Cola with CBD. Do you see any bullshit in some of these new places coming into the market? Well, I believe Coca-Cola backed out. Um, yeah, so Altria investing in Kronos, but look, dude, um, Juul, the, those vape pens was the same company as Pax vape pens, Pax for cannabis, Juul for tobacco or to nicotine. So this isn't new. I believe that all of these tobacco companies moving into the e-cigarette market was also a way to prepare their own e-technology or e-cig technology to be used in cannabis this isn't far out there this i think this any like intelligent alcohol or tobacco executive whose job it is to stay on top of things should have known a long time ago cannabis is going to compete so altria and chronos and so that's the big philip morris play then there's a uh, constellation brands which is invested in Canopy. That was the big alcohol play, but there's also Heineken getting into it. And yeah, we have GW Pharma that has a patent on the CBD isolate type of drug, which is, 
I think we're going to see now that the Farm Bill passed in the U.S., we're going to see what the FDA does when it comes to regulating CBD and if they go in favor of pharmaceutical companies, which I'm pretty sure they will, or if they're going to treat it like nutritional supplement, which I doubt they will because they can't make any money off of it that way. One of the first people I met who is in the cannabis culture, he has his own business with his girlfriend. They do photography work and graphic design and website design. But he said to me he would never, ever try a uh, big pharma version of cannabis because in his view, they give an opioid. They see them as like profiting from the old system. I think that the most important vote you can make is with your money. So we can subvert the system. We as individuals can fight the corporate takeover and consolidation, and that is by growing our own. If we just grow at home, we won't be giving them our money. The key is, is that you don't give a crappy nutrition or um, nutrient company your money, like Scott's miracle Grow or something like that. But the key to us maintaining our industry, maintaining quality, maintaining organic, maintaining a free to reasonable price is if we grow our own cannabis. And I really highly suggest anybody everybody should grow a plant at least once. It is the most therapeutic, amazing experience in the freaking world. And, and, and to be able to grow just to screw over these companies is like even freaking sweeter. And let me tell you, when you grow a plant with love, it, you can feel it. You can feel the difference. Commercial cannabis versus grown with love. There's, there's some really serious I don't know the science behind it. Maybe it's energy, but, and I'm a cynical, skeptical person, but I swear to God, like when you buy any cannabis or anything that's grown with love, you taste it, you can feel it. There's a difference. Subvert the system, grow your own. We have craft growers and let's call them the cheap growers. And what I mean by that is sometimes you don't get the quality you're looking for, but if you go to craft, it's expensive. And unfortunately, usually you have to have well enough amount of money to buy those. Do you think there's a bullshit in that? It's like Whole Foods in California, we make fun, we call it Whole Paycheck because it's ridiculously overpriced. But it's all like organic, free range, gluten free, alpine, like safe, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that costs more money. I want to buy all organic. Of course, I want to buy sustainable, good quality things. Yeah, they probably taste better and whatever, but I can't freaking afford it. So I think I love the craft growers, dude. I want to support them. Like I want them to win, but I don't think it's realistic to think that people out there have the money to put their money where their heart is, which is craft cannabis, unless you have the budget for it. That's just the simple fact. It's like when Walmart started taking over all these mom and pop shops closed up because they couldn't compete with the low prices of Walmart. I freaking hate Walmart. Like they're just one of those companies. I, I admit I've bought a couple pillows from them in the past couple of years. But besides that, like I will not give Walmart my money because I don't support them at the same time. I can't necessarily shop at the mom and pop shops, you know? So I think that I would, it's, it is kind of bullshit to believe that they're actually going to survive based on their merits and their product quality unless people have the money for it. And that's just straight up capitalism. 
when I first started looking online just to see what kind of jobs were popping up, uh, now you're getting to see a lot more uh, job requirements and a lot of them end up being uh, cultivation people and extraction people. How do you find good people? That's a great question. Um, I mean, for companies, you got a good employee is so worth it. It's so worth the investment. It can cost you so much more to hire a bad employee. I kind of think, because I mean, as the BS detector, I'm very um, apprehensive to recommending people to things if I haven't actually worked with them and I know what they're like because I've been shocked and surprised and like sorely disappointed, surprised by a lot of people in my career. So I think that recruiting companies, they know what they're doing. That's literally their job is to go in headhunt and like verify these people. And true, you've got to pay them, but you also get a better quality pool, I believe. I think that's the best way to go. Or I mean, because it's illegal to do background criminal checks and stuff like that as an employer in California. So like you really don't have that many options besides calling their, their reference. Of course, their references are going to say good things. That's why they put those people down in the first place. So it takes a bit of time. I mean, calling up their ex-employers and trying to find out information on them and let the recruiters do their jobs. You do your job, they'll do their job, and they'll make your job easier and hopefully make this job that they fill, you know, with a quality candidate that will last a long time and be an asset. But I really don't think companies should be cheap when it comes to their employees. What do you think about professionals who are presenting themselves as experts? You're not an expert in this industry if you have less than 10 years in the cannabis industry. And that means before it was legal. Just because a state goes legal doesn't mean all the cannabis companies in it are run by business people. Generally, they're run by people from the gray or illegal industry, and they need to learn how to operate their businesses. But they understand the culture and all of the different nuances. And there are a ton of nuances to this industry. Just dealing with the people in this industry, everything is different. I mean, all businesses should be operated on the same principles, but it just isn't a perfect world when you get in. This is a new industry. Just because you sold gold and you were really successful on Wall Street or you ran like a really successful bread company does not mean that you're a cannabis expert just because now you're in the cannabis industry. Even if you call yourself an expert and you're under 10 years, then like you've got an inflated ego, dude. And I question you. And I really don't like the term expert unless you are a subject matter expert. And to me, that's someone who's gone through the fire and knows the risks and everything that comes along with it, not just the speculation and their limited experience over a couple of years. Check yourself, you know, before you try and front like that. It, it's just really annoying to us experts <laughs> that actually know what we're talking about. Do your due diligence, man. Like look up their, look up what they say, double check it. People freaking lie all the time. They're so, I mean, Unfortunately, there's more bad players than good players in the cannabis industry because bad players are more successful. That's just the way it is. I know that there was some issue with licensing. I think it was called licensing stacking. So California, when it first came out with the regulations, said that they would not allow 
any massive growth, anything over 22,000 square feet until 2023 to allow the smaller growths to get their footing in the industry. But at the 11th hour before they published the first version of the regulations, the governor had taken that part out and allowed companies to buy 22,000 square foot licenses next to each other, thereby doubling, tripling, quadrupling, and making these huge grows that have individual licenses, but they're right next to each other. So it's basically like one huge grow. And that's the type of thing that really causes early consolidation and makes a completely unfair playing ground for all these other companies that have more expenses that don't have the size to compete. Then when you have an oversupply, prices go down. Everyone was pissed because that was that was a very shady move. Also, California allows people from out of the state to get into the industry where other states don't. You have to be a resident of that state. Some cities, I believe Oakland, requires that you're a resident of a specific amount of years to actually get a license, but the state doesn't. Now that we're getting to the end, I can ask if you can give advice to people on how they should choose their strain. Okay, cool. Number one, we have to stop calling it a strain. And even I say strain because everyone says strain, but the correct word is cultivar because a strain scientifically is a form of bacteria or it's the bacterial strains. They're called strains, not plants. Plants are called cultivars. What cultivar was I inhaling? It, well, it was supposedly uh, Gorilla Glue number four, also known as GG4, because they got sued by Gorilla Glue Company for a trademark infringement, but that's another story. But I don't think it was, but it was okay. In the end, the name of a cultivar is really BS unless you know that the company got the genetics from the actual company and started from seed or got certified uh, genetic clones from a company. And then that's what it is. So more than likely, your product is correctly labeled. Mine was free and came from a homie, so who knows what it is. But it was oh, good. I love that. Uh, so what's next for you? And how do you think people can uh, connect with you if they want to find out more? Okay, if you want to connect with me, I'm on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash that Kristen Yoder. You can find me on Instagram at soil to the oil all spelled out, which is also my website soil to the oil.com. I have my own podcast called the cannabis detector where I focus in on topics and call out bullshit with experts. And you can find that on iTunes, Spreaker, basically anywhere you listen to podcasts. And the website for it is cannabispod.com. I'm also on Dash Radio. Uh, I have a show called Soil to the Oil Storytime, where I invite people in the cannabis industry to come on and tell their funny, crazy stories and experience they have inside the industry. And you can find that on the Purple Haze Radio channel on Dash Radio. You can also go to Purple Haze Radio on iTunes and you can find my show is always labeled Soil to the Oil Storytime. I think that's basically everything. Thank you for taking your time and uh, I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you. Great interview. I feel like I've really gotten to say my piece.
Hey, I hope you liked that episode. Uh, if you need to reach me, Milton Wani, you can contact me at uh, Milton at UX Big Ideas. You can also check me out on LinkedIn. Uh, I also publish a monthly newsletter that I suggest uh, is a good idea for anybody who's interested in finding out what's happening around uh, in Canada and the United States when it comes to uh, the emerging cannabis market. I also am going to be adding uh, these uh, these uh, podcasts into the newsletter as well as my own uh, in-depth kind of insights uh, that are going to come from this. So uh, yeah, check me out and I hope you have a great day.